One of the most special times in my life was the, t- the two different times that we introduced our children to family and friends for the first time. If you're a parent, you can probably relate to this because there is so much buildup and anticipation when a child is coming into the world or coming into your family for the first time. For a woman who's pregnant, there are all the doctor's appointments and the birthing classes and the preparations at home to get the home ready for a newborn child. Uh, There are all the people who are asking when the due date is. There's all this anticipation and buildup. If people are in the adoption process to bring a new child into their family, there's all the paperwork that goes into that. There uh, There are all the meetings with social workers. There is the excitement of of receiving pictures of the child who will be coming into your family. There is all that waiting period during the process of bringing that child into your family. And this latter example is what Shelley and I experienced, all that waiting time in adopting children from Ethiopia and from China. And, And for us, the initial time of introducing those new children to family took place in the Milwaukee airport uh, because we had the long plane flights home and our, each of our sets of parents were there in the airport waiting to meet us and to meet their grandchildren for the first time. I mean, they, they'd heard about their uh, grandchildren, they'd seen pictures of them, but they hadn't yet met them face to face. And it was such a special time. One of the proudest moments I've had in my life was introducing our children to their grandparents for the first time. Very special time, and and really it's that way whenever new children are being introduced to family and to friends. Well, today we're beginning a new sermon series called Christmas Defined, and we're beginning with a look at the time in which God introduced his son to the world. Uh, in, in, in that time when God introduced his son, I have a feeling that he was very proud uh, of his son. We know from later in Jesus' life that there are a couple different occurrences of when God said to a crowd of people who are around Jesus, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And when you hear the pride of a father coming through in those words, and so I imagine that at that moment when God was bringing his son into, into this world, introducing him, to humanity for the first time, I imagine there is a sense of pride, a sense of excitement and joy, just like we experience pride and excitement and joy when we introduce new children to people around us. I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 4. As I said, we are beginning a new series today. Uh, It is called Christmas Defined, and what we're doing in the series is each week we're going to look at one particular word, a word that is very meaningful to the story of Christmas. And as we dig into each of these words through the course of this series, we're seeking to gain a fresh perspective on a story that may be very familiar to us. Unfortunately, familiarity sometimes breeds indifference. Or we just kind of feel like, okay, we know all there is to know about the Christmas story. But our goal as we look at these words in terms of the broader Christmas story, our goal is to see with fresh eyes, the meaning of Christ coming to this world. And today's word that we're looking at is the word fullness, especially as it occurs in the phrase, the fullness of time. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in. Our Father, we thank you that you so love the world that you sent your Son. And I pray today as we look at this topic of the fullness of time in which you sent your Son, I pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear in fresh ways. The, the significance of the Christmas story. 
I pray that we will not just take for granted these truths, but we'll, we'll hear them and apply them in fresh ways. In Jesus' name, amen. This phrase, the fullness of time, occurs in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. I'm going to read it. It says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son. If you read it in a bunch of other English translations, such as the English Standard Version, which I really like as well, it's a little bit more literal. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. It's the idea of the fullness of time. The Greek word here behind the word fullness is the word pleroma. It was a word that would oftentimes be used of physical objects that would be filled. For instance, you could have a jar that is filled with water. Or you could have a room that is filled with people. But oftentimes this word pleroma, fullness, would be used metaphorically as well. You could be said to be full of joy or full of sorrow or or, or full of comfort. And when you hear that usage of that word, it doesn't mean that someone has a pitcher that is full of joy or sorrow or comfort that they're literally pouring into your life. That, that doesn't work. That's not what it's talking about. It's used metaphorically saying that, that you are characterized by joy, sorrow, comfort, uh, qualities like that. And in this case that we're looking at today in Galatians 4, that word pleroma is used metaphorically of time to refer to the fullness of time. And what this is saying is that God had a divine plan for redemption that he was working out. And it was in the fullness of time, in the right time, when the time was ready, that's the time that God sent his son into the world. Let me give you an idea of what this looks like. We all probably know what it's like to bake cookies. I mean, it's a thing we do sometimes even around Christmas time. When you're baking cookies, there's a certain amount of time that they need to be in the oven to cook properly. If there are kids around when you're baking cookies, the kids are probably asking, okay, how much longer till the cookies are ready? I want to eat them. I want to eat them. And if they ask you how much longer till the cookies are ready, you may look at the timer and say, okay, the timer says there are four minutes left. And when that timer goes off, we're going to be able to take the cookies out of the oven and we're going to let them cool a little bit and then we can eat them. And so what that means when you say that is that in four minutes, the fullness of time will be reached for the cooking of the cookies. And at that time, you take them out of the oven. In the same way, metaphorically speaking, God has a timer that basically was set for his redemptive plan. And when that timer went off, when the fullness of time was reached, that is the time that God sent his son into the world. Now, I want to dig a little bit more deeply into this passage. I'm sure we could stop there, but I want to dig more deeply to see the fullness of what Paul is saying here and what God is saying through Paul. And for this, we're going to look at Paul's argument in Galatians 3 and 4. What Paul is doing here is essentially giving an argument that salvation comes by faith in Christ, not by obeying the law. That's really the essence of the entire book of Galatians because this letter is written to churches in a, in a place called Galatia. It's in Asia Minor. It's, it's largely in what we know today as Turkey. And many of these churches were in danger of forsaking the gospel. That they had previously held to faith in Christ as being the way to have a right relationship with God. But now they were being tempted to revert to their old Jewish ways of trying to observe the law as a way to earn God's favor. And Paul is offering a very sophisticated argument throughout Galatians, and especially in chapters 3 and 4, trying to show the Galatians 
That, that rightness with God does not come through obedience, through your good works, but it comes first and foremost and finally through faith in Christ. And the most sophisticated part of the argument, that the central point occurs right in the middle of the letter, chapters 3 and 4, where he's making a, an argument based on the historical sequence of what God has done down through history. And we start off back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, looking at Paul's argument, when he gives Abraham as a model of faith. Galatians 3, 6 says, Paul says, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a quote from the Old Testament. And it's talking about Abraham, a man who lived about 2,000 years before the time of Christ. I mean, right now we're about 2,000 years after the time of Christ. And you think, okay, that's a long time. Well, take that 2,000 years and put that before the time of Christ. And that's how long ago Abraham lived, about 4,000 years ago. And it says, back then, Abraham believed God. And that was the source of his righteousness in God's eyes. So we see even way back then, the way to be right in God's eyes is by trusting God, by faith in him. And we see, reading on in Galatians 3, that God made a promise to Abraham. Picking up in verse 7, Paul says, Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So there is this astounding promise that God gave to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. All nations will be blessed through you. And as Paul continues to progress in his argument in Galatians 3 and 4, we see very clearly that the means through which God is going to bless the nations through Abraham has to do with the descendant who had come from Abraham, a particular person who came to be known as the Messiah, also known as the Christ. And, and so the focus of God's blessing of the nations through Abraham was through this Messiah who had come as a descendant of Abraham. But we also see, as, Paul, as we follow Paul's logic here, that 430 years after Paul sp or God spoke this promise to Abraham, God instituted the law, the Old Testament law, the, the law that came through Moses. He instituted it as a way to guide and to govern Israel. But Paul makes it very clear that this Mosaic law was never meant to be the end-all, be-all for people. It, it was temporary. It was a way to guide and govern Israel, but it was not the end-all, be-all. He's making the point that the, the focus now is to be on Christ. Look with me now to Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. We're going to read a longer passage here. Paul asks a question. He says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So we see there that, that the focus is on, you know what, the law cannot give you righteousness. It's only faith in Christ. It's been that way the entire time. Picking up in verse 23, Paul writes, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. 
Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So again, we see the law and obedience to the law and good religious works cannot make us right in God's eyes. It's only through faith in Christ that we can be made right in God's eyes. And Paul is making a very, I think a really cool argument here for the way that the, the law was simply a short-term guardian in effect. And, and to see this, we have to look to a more literal translation than the NIV. For instance, if you go to the English Standard Version, let me read verses 24 and 25 again. The English Standard Version reads, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So there is this, this word here, guardian. And it's a very specific word. That, the Greek word behind it is the word pedagogos. Pedagogos was someone who was hired by wealthy families back in that culture to take care of the kids. The nurse would take care of the kids when they were, say, up to age five or six or so. But from age five or six until the child reached uh, maturity, came of age, which would typically in that culture be 12, 13, 14, somewhere in that range. And wealthier families, they would hire a pedagogos, a guardian, who would watch over the children. And the pedagogos was responsible for really being with the children everywhere the children went. If, when the children went to school, the pedagogos would go with them. If, when the children were working on homework, the pedagogos would be there to help. When uh, the children needed to learn manners, the pedagogos would be there to teach them manners. If you've seen The Sound of Music, you probably have a picture of what a pedagogos may look like. In our house right now, The Sound of Music is huge. Uh, Poor Washington High School put on production of The Sound of Music a few weeks ago, and Shelley and Micaias went to that. And ever since that event, Micaias has been hooked on Sound of Music. I mean, Shelley has a, a really old VHS recording of Sound of Music that was recorded off TV. And, you know, we kind of try to limit the amount of TV that's watched in our house. But practically every day since that musical at Port Washington High School we have had at least a portion, if not the entirety, of Sound of Music playing in our house. Micaias goes around everywhere singing songs from the Sound of Music. Uh, when the NBC special was on this last Thursday, it was a very exciting time in our house. If you know the, the, the role of Maria in the Sound of Music, she was called a governess. She was hired by the family to watch over the kids, to, to really help them out. And, and the role that Maria played in the Sound of Music as a governess, was quite similar to the role of pedagogos back in this ancient Jewish or Greco-Roman culture. And the pedagogos would watch over the children until they came of age. In our culture here in America, for most of us, we don't really have any special ritual or even time when a, when a child is seen to come of age and to grow in maturity and to really move into adulthood. You still see it some places today, especially in Jewish culture. You have the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah at age 12 or 13. But for the most part, we don't have that today. But back in that culture, it was a big deal when a child came of age. And at that point, when the child came of age, the pedagogos' role would be done. And the responsibility then for raising the child, for caring for the child, would be transferred to the father or the mother. The child would follow the father or mother around and be apprenticed to them and, and usually become vocationally whatever the father or mother was at that point. And so 
Paul here is making the, the argument that, that the law was a pedagogos. The law was simply a short-term guardian that now has been rendered obsolete. Because historically speaking, when you look at the sequence of what God was doing, doing chronologically, the law has been surpassed now because time has come of age. The fullness of time has come. Back in verse 24, we see that, that the law was our guardian until Christ came. But now that Christ has come, the law is no longer the guardian. We don't need the law any longer because Christ, the fullness, is here. And now, if you're reading out of the NIV, it says that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That, that is one way to translate that, but I think a better translation is to say that until Christ came, the law was put in charge. And actually, there is a footnote in the New International Version that says that, that, that the law was put in charge until Christ came. But it, when then when that time that Christ came, the fullness of time had been reached. The, essentially speaking, uh, God's redemptive plan came of age, and now the focus is on Christ. Look with me now to a passage beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul is continuing this metaphor. He says, What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were principled. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might become or receive the full rights of sons. So we see here that when God's redemptive plan came of age, he sent his son. In the fullness of time, he's talking, first of all, in the first couple of verses of chapter 4, about this idea of, of being a minor, um, age-wise, of still having a guardian. But then when, when you come of age, you no longer have that pedagogos watching over you. And, and that's what Paul is talking about. He said, you know what? In the past, the law was the guardian. But now, Christ has come. The fullness of time has come. Time, God's redemptive plan has come of age. So now, he sent Christ. And the focus is to be on him. And this was an anticipation that, that occurred for hundreds of years. The, the prophets, as they were God's mouthpiece in the world, they were looking ahead with anticipation and excitement to the time when Christ would come. I think, for instance, of Jeremiah chapter 31, of how uh, God was speaking through Jeremiah. And he said, chapter 31, beginning in verse 1, he said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, uh, is that I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And so through Jeremiah, God is speaking of a time that will come when there will be a new covenant. The old covenant will be obsolete because the new one has come in the fullness of time. And this new covenant 
is characterized, one, by knowing that at that point, the law will no longer be an external code to be followed, but instead the law will be written on people's hearts. That's a reference to the fact that now that Christ has come, anyone who believes in Christ has the Holy Spirit living inside of, the, of us to empower us, to guide us, to, to help us to live lives that honor God. Through Jeremiah, God also talks about this time will be a time when there is full forgiveness of sins, that sins will not simply be temporarily covered by sacrifices of animals, but instead there will be full and final washing away of sins. So Jeremiah is talking about a specific time that will come. And we see through a lot of other Old Testament prophecies that God's not just prophesying about a time, but he's talking about a person who will inaugurate that new time, that new covenant. We see, for instance, the classic words out of Isaiah chapter 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So we see that the the prophetic focus, the the hints that God is dropping, is not just on a time in which God will do some cool things. It's on a person who will come into this world and be a ruler to establish justice and peace and righteousness and forgiveness. The focus is on a person. Now, in my own personal times with God over the last few weeks, I've been reading through the book of Isaiah. To be honest with you, in terms of my understanding of Scripture, my weakest understanding is probably of the Old Testament prophets. I mean, I've read the Old Testament prophets many, many times, but in terms of the historical context of what's taking on, the imagery that's there, that's probably where my understanding is the weakest. And so I'm reading through Isaiah very systematically. I mean, it's, it's going to be a, a long process because Isaiah is a long book. And I'm reading through it with the commentary to help me understand historically what is going on here, what's being talked about here. And it's really a, a rich and encouraging study. My eyes are being opened to a lot of new things. But we look at the prophet Isaiah. He lived about 700 years before the time of Christ. He lived in a very tumultuous time. It, it was a time... When Assyria, a neighboring kingdom, was the military superpower of that part of the world. And Israel and Judah were being threatened by Assyria. And and God gave a very scary message to Isaiah to communicate to the people. That at some point in the near future, Assyria is going to come and invade and even destroy Israel and Judah. And I imagine that as Isaiah received this news, that he was probably a bit freaked out. And, I mean, I know I would be. And I imagine that Isaiah, as other prophets did, he was probably looking at the society around him and and was very distraught just to see the immorality and the godlessness and the lack of care that people had for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. At the same time, Isaiah was being given these, these prophecies from God about the future, about this coming Messiah who would then establish a government that never ends, that is based on peace and righteousness and justice. And so amidst the turmoil that that Isaiah was experiencing and that he was communicating to the nation of Judah and Israel, he also had this hope 
And I just, putting myself in Isaiah's shoes, I, I can just imagine the excitement that he had. That as he looks around him, he sees trouble and brokenness and pain. But then as he looks at these promises, he'd be filled with excitement and anticipation, wanting to experience what God was promising through him. But he didn't fully experience it. He told about it. He dreamt about it. He had the vision of that time. But it was still 700 years before God would say the fullness of time has come to send this Messiah. So I think about that, what that would be like to experience that anticipation in the midst of a society that was in turmoil. Now, we have the question. Now we're on the other side of the fullness of time. 2,000 years ago, God did send the Son. Why did God choose that particular time in world history? I think there was a specific reason why God did choose that time. It was certainly that his redemptive plan had reached fullness of time. The timer had gone off. He determined it was the right time to send the Son. But what were some of the, the factors that may have caused God to say, this is the time? I mean, he was holding history in his hands. He knew everything that was going to happen. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen 100 years from now. He knew the same thing back then. And so what were some of, the, some of the factors that may have led God to say, this is the time? Well, I think one of the factors was politically. You had the Roman Empire and the, what's known as the Pax Romana. The Roman Empire at that time was really in its peak. I mean, it encapsulated much of Europe, the Middle East, Northern Africa. And, and the Roman government at that time, you know what, it definitely has its problems as any government does. But it was also a government that was relatively peaceful. And they had what was called the Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. And what this meant was it was the mentality that was governing the Roman Empire, that they wanted to be an empire of peace. They wanted people to be able to travel peacefully throughout the empire. There was a, a very sophisticated system of roads that was unlike anything that had happened in world history up to that point that allowed for very easy travel throughout the Roman Empire. And the Pax Romana called for peaceful travel. They could travel through all these diverse lands within the Roman Empire peacefully and easily. And because of the Pax Romana and the other aspects of politics in the Roman Empire, it, it, it was very conducive to the spread of the gospel in the decades to follow the time of Christ. I also look culturally at the influence, especially of the Greek language. Uh, Greek was the predominant language of the people back then. Latin was kind of the official language of government. But based on the wishes of Alexander the Great, who lived a couple hundred years before the time of Christ, Alexander the Great was one who really helped establish and, and expand the Roman Empire. He wanted to see Greek in terms of the Greek language and the Greek culture be predominant in the Roman Empire. And so Greek was the language of the people. That wherever you went in the Roman Empire, if you could speak Greek, regardless of the local languages and local dialects, if you could speak Greek, you could probably communicate pretty decently with the vast majority of people. The New Testament was actually written in Greek, which, which allowed it to be understood by a large percentage of the people there. And so again, it was an environment that was very conducive to the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. I look also at the spiritual climate of that time. First of all, there was a strong Jewish identity. God had been cultivating the Jewish people as his people for hundreds and hundreds of years to prepare for the coming Messiah. 
And at that time, Judaism was still very strong. Um, and, and, and they even had the sacrificial system still going. The Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Since that time, there have not been Jewish sacrifices that have been offered. The temple has not been rebuilt. But at the time of Christ, when God said the fullness of time has come to send his son, the Jewish temple was still there. Sacrifices were still being offered. And that provided a great backdrop for the metaphor of Christ being our Passover lamb to take on all the sins of the world. And so there was a strong Jewish identity. There was an expectation that they had. They were ready for change. They were ready for a Messiah to come to the world. And also, not just in Judaism, but in the, in the broader culture of that day, there was a significant openness to the supernatural. I mean, Jews, unlike today, the Jews definitely believed in God. And if you go to Israel today, you'll find a significant proportion of the Jews are actually atheists. I mean, they still maintain the, the Jewish culture and the Jewish practices, but they would question or doubt the existence of God. If you look at our culture here in America, increasingly more and more people are questioning the existence of God or, or anything that takes place that might be supernatural. But in that culture, not just Jews, but throughout the Roman Empire, there was an openness to the supernatural. Not just an openness, but there was a comfortableness with talking about supernatural things. And in our culture, even people who, who have faith in God, who believe that, fully that he exists, are, are encouraged to keep their faith to themselves, to not talk about it publicly. I mean, religion is supposedly one of those things that we aren't supposed to talk about because it's divisive. But, I mean, that's what our culture says. But, but in that culture, they were very comfortable talking about the supernatural. And so it was a culture that was, that was very conducive for when God came to this world in the form of a human being, to conducive, I mean, they still struggle with that idea. But they were open to the reality of the existence of God and the, and the reality that God is actively at work in this world. So I think those are some of the human reasons, from a human perspective, why God said that is the fullness of time for his redemptive plan to send his son. Now, when we look at Scripture, I mean, we're looking at this topic of the fullness of time. There is one other occurrence in Scripture of the phrase, the fullness of time. Paul is also the author of that phrase. It's over in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read it to you. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, it's in verse 10, but I'm going to read 9 and 10 just to give us the context. Paul writes, And God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now that is a dense sentence. Um, and actually, if you look at it in the Greek, um, there are something like 11 verses that are there, one long run-on sentence. Paul likes his long sentences. But, but there, it's a very dense sentence full of theology that's talking about the fullness of time. But this is a different fullness of time than we see in Galatians 4, because Galatians 4 is talking about the fullness of time of the first time that Christ was sent into this world. Here in Ephesians 1, Paul is talking about Christ's return the second time that he will send Christ into this world. And we see that because he's talking about that time uh, when God's redemptive plan has reached the fullness of time, all things in heaven and on earth will be united under the lordship of Christ. 
When we look at our world today and we look at those messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, we see that, that not everything has been fulfilled yet. I mean, think back to Isaiah chapter 9. We don't yet see, God, see the government of, of the Messiah reigning in the earth. We still see injustice. We still see unrighteousness. We still see um, strife. There's still not a full fulfillment of these prophecies of what the Messiah will bring. He has come, but they aren't yet fully fulfilled. And the same sentiment is, is prevalent in the New Testament. For, for instance, in Philippians 2, Paul is talking about a time to come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything in heaven and on earth will, will do that. The time has not yet come for that. We're still waiting for that second fullness of time. And so that's the era that we find ourselves in right now. We're still waiting for the grand finale of the fullness of time of Christ, of God's redemptive plan. So what should we do in the meantime as we are waiting? Well, one, we should humbly submit ourselves to Christ. When Jesus began his ministry, some of his very first words in his official ministry are recorded in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And he said there, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus recognizes this is a very significant time in human history now that he is here and he's beginning his ministry. He says, because of the, the time has come, because he is here, repent and believe the good news. I mean, Jesus came as a compassionate, uh, loving, gracious Savior. I mean, he can be a very intimate, caring friend for us. But we should not be nonchalant about who Jesus is because he's also the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there's going to come a time that he returns, that we are going to see him face to face, whether it's in that return or whether we die first. We're going to meet Jesus face to face. I guarantee you that at that moment, in that time, we're not going to want to be, have been nonchalant about Jesus. There are probably going to be a lot of things that we have invested a lot of time and energy into that we've based our identity and our significance on in this lifetime that are shown in life eternity to be rather meaningless. The call for us is to repent of our self-centered or, or sinful ways, to believe in Christ, to turn to him, to follow him. So part of what that means is that we have to come to that point where we come to faith in Christ and we say, Jesus, I can't earn salvation on my own. My good works don't work. I need you to save me. We all need to come to that point. And even after we've come to that point, we need to continue to live a lifestyle of repentance and a lifestyle of following Christ wholeheartedly, preparing for that time when we will see him face to face. So we need to humbly submit ourselves to Christ. And secondly, we need to confidently hope in Christ. Confidently hope in Christ. With, with the coming of Christ, there is great joy. I mean, there is great joy at the first coming of Christ. And for those of us who are trusting in Christ, there, there is a reason for great joy at the second coming of Christ as well. Because Jesus has already won the victory 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross. He defeated death and sin, and the forces of darkness. The victory's already been won. But at that time when Jesus returns, the victory will be enforced. And so if we ever have aligned ourselves with him, we will be able to celebrate with him in that victory. And this is a great thing. 
I mean, I, I shared earlier about that, that anticipation the prophets would have had because they were living in an environment that was so challenging and so tumultuous and so concerning about what was going on in their midst. And they had that hope of the future of a Messiah who had come. But I think that's actually a lot like our own circumstance. I mean, we live in a world that is broken. I mean, we are just a few days short of the first anniversary of the Newtown massacres in which, which way too many elementary school children were gunned down mercilessly. And we live in a world where cancer ravages people. It, it turns people's lives upside down and even claims their lives at times. We live in a world where there's government corruption. We live in a world, we live in a country where we look around and we wonder, okay, what's going to happen in the future? And it can be kind of unsettling. We live in a broken world. But amidst this broken world, we have a hope. And that hope is in Christ. That one day, maybe sooner, maybe later, it's going to be in the fullness of time when God's redemptive plan uh, reaches its climax. The Son of God will return and set things right once and for all. I've oftentimes heard, uh, heard the coming of Christ especially the first coming, but it'll be the second coming as well, described as kind of the cosmic D-Day. D-Day occurred back in World War II uh, when the Allied forces attacked, made a surprise attack in Normandy, France, that really turned the tide of World War II and in turn turned the tide of world history. A very exciting time. And D-Day was a surprise for the vast majority of the world. But we should recognize that even though this was the greatest single, the biggest single military operation in world history that turned the tide of world history, and it surprised so many people, there was certainly a lot of planning that went on behind the scenes. It wasn't like someone woke up one day and said, okay, let's do this big thing and we're going to do it tomorrow. There were over six months of planning and training leading up to D-Day. In the same way for God, he didn't just wake up one day and say, okay, I need to send the Messiah into the world. He had been planning from eternity past. He'd been putting all the pieces in place. And when the timer went off and the fullness of time had been reached, he sent his son into this world to win the ultimate victory against sin and death and the forces of darkness. The victory has been won. Sometime in the future, it's going to be enforced when Christ returns. We all know what it's like to anticipate Christmas. I mean, I think of little children. I think of when I was a little child. The anticipation, the excitement of Christmas. I could not sleep the night before. I was so excited. Oftentimes, the excitement was largely around the gifts. But we've been given a gift. Jesus Christ, the greatest gift of all. And one day, God's going to, again, return in the form of Jesus to give us the ultimate gift of all. May our sentiment in this time, this Christmas anticipation time, this anticipation time of the second fullness of time, may we have the same sentiment as, as John in Revelation saying, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing grace that in the fullness of time you stepped off your heavenly throne to come to this world to be our Redeemer. God, I pray that you will help us to live in light of the fullness of time, of the first fullness of time when you sent Christ the first time. And Lord, help us not only look back, but also to look ahead of that time when Christ will return and that we will look ahead to that time with joy and with anticipation and allowing that time 
to truly transform our perspective here and now. Lord, we do live in a world that is broken. We do lift up those who are suffering. We lift up those who are grieving as they remember their losses a year ago in Newtown. We lift up those who are going through cancer right now, even the Bosikowski family, Lord. We pray that in the midst of these challenges, that you will give hope in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.